1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 26 through to chapter 10 verse 13. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A couple of weeks ago, as we finished up chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about the lengths that he would go to in sharing the gospel with the world. But there were limits to where he would go and what he would do. Uh, The danger is that we can become so connected with the world that we ourselves become worldly. And so he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Now once again, it comes up reasonably regularly, but once again it's come up again. If you're someone who believes in the human teaching of once saved, always saved, this is a passage that you're going to have a lot of trouble with. Um, You see, some people believe that once anyone makes a commitment to Christ, they are in a special relationship with God that can never, ever be broken. And no matter how they behave from that point on, and no matter what they even believe from that point point on, provided their initial conversion was genuine, uh, they feel that they're always going to be in this privileged position of being the redeemed. Uh, But this is a human teaching which doesn't really stack up biblically and today it's a very good example of how it doesn't stack up biblically. Today, Paul is giving us a warning that how we live matters. How we relate to other Christians matters. How we relate to God matters. How we conduct ourselves morally matters. And it's all about the heart. It all begins with what we crave for, whether we crave for things of the spirit or whether we crave for things of the flesh. Paul describes it here as a desire or a craving for what is evil. And even though we are saved, 
We still get tempted sometimes, don't we? Yes? Yeah, we do. There continues to be, at some level, a craving for evil, that with God's help, we have to recognise it and overcome it. We are a redeemed people. We've been saved to become a people who live by the Spirit. Now, I want to be really clear here. I am not saying that we are saved by being good people. Nobody ever gets saved by being a good person. Um, In God's grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us what we don't deserve. We are saved despite our undeserving state. Uh, This is what the grace of God is all about. And it's a very privileged position that we have as God's people. But we must not presume upon our standing before God and become a people who allow the flesh to rule us rather than the spirit. And to make his point, today Paul takes us into the Old Testament. Uh, It's not only Christians who have a kind of privileged position with God. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham and the people of Israel became God's chosen people. And the whole experience of God saving the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt was an an example, although it was much more than an example. The the Greek word is typos, typoi. You might be able to say it was a type of salvation experience similar to what we have in Christ. But it functions here as more of a formative model. Let me explain that. How the Israelites should have been shaped and formed through their experience of being saved is a formative model for how we should be shaped and formed through our experience of being saved. And the pitfalls that they had are very similar pitfalls that we need to both recognise and avoid. And so chapter 10 begins by describing how the people of Israel had their own salvation experience. Reading from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What's this cloud business? When God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the sign that God was with them was the pillar of cloud. And the glory of God was within and concealed by this pillar of cloud. The cloud would lead them where they needed to go. When the Egyptian army pursued them, the cloud of God ducked around to the rear of the Israelites to protect them from the Egyptian army. When the tabernacle had been built, that cloud of God would settle down upon the tabernacle as the glory of God would fill the holy place. And then when the cloud rose up again from the tabernacle, well, they knew, oh, God's moving. It's time for us to go too. So once the cloud rose up, they'd pack up the tabernacle, which was a tent, and they'd move on and they'd follow the cloud again. All right? it, it, so the cloud was a sign of God's presence with them. When they crossed the Red Sea and God parted the waters of the sea and the people passed through and then the waters closed back in again over their enemy, 
This was all part of the redemptive experience. And Paul is using all of this as an example of baptism, an analogy of baptism. And then he gives an analogy of communion as well. They'd even been fed spiritually with manna from heaven and water from the rock, not just gifts of God, but he actually calls them here that the gifts of Christ. Uh, you know, don't you, that Jesus didn't only begin to exist at that first Christmas at, when he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus existed for all time. Christ, the, the, God the Son, was there at creation. God the Son was right there at the salvation of the people of Israel from Egypt. When they were thirsty and there was nothing for them to drink and, and Moses was told to speak to the rock and let water come out of it and he actually struck the rock and water came out of that rock, that was Christ's doing. The water that was given to them was given to them by Christ. Leon Morris, a very highly respected Bible teacher, says this. Paul shows from the history of the people of God that the enjoyment of high privilege does not guarantee final blessing. The Israelites of old experienced redemption, baptism, and God's continuing help. But they flirted with idolatry and nearly all of them perished in the wilderness. It may be that some of the Corinthians felt that their baptism and their use of Holy Communion guaranteed their final salvation, no matter what they did. Paul warns us that this is not so. You see, the Israelites were God's chosen people, all of them. They all had been saved. They all had experienced the miracles of God. Imagine experiencing the miracles that they had experienced, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. By the way, um, there was a liberal theologian once, and he, there was a, he was talking to this fellow. He said, oh, it's a, mir it's a miracle. It's a miracle the, the way that the waters were parted and, and the people of Israel would be able to walk, walk through. And this liberal theologian says, oh, you realise, of course, that the interpretation is uh, it was actually only a very shallow swamp. And so it was actually, they actually only managed to cross a swamp. And this bloke goes, oh, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And he says, why are you still saying it's a miracle? I've just explained to you that it's a swamp that they cross. Oh, it's a miracle. God managed to drown the entire Egyptian army in a swamp. Um, yeah. Okay, that's a by-the-way thing. Let's get back on track. These miracles that they'd all experienced, all of them had. But you know, out of the thousands who had left Egypt, do you know how many of them made it to the promised land? Two. Too. Some of you even be able to tell me their names. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Why did so many perish on the journey? Verse 5 has a very ominous ring to it. With most of them, God was not pleased. And that verse forces us to consider if God is pleased with my behaviour. But why did it happen? What was the purpose of it all? Well, it might surprise you to learn that one of the reasons they perished was for our sake. 
It was as a lesson for us as to the gravity of just how critical it is to live by the Spirit. Somebody once said, a wise man learns from other people's mistakes. And there's an opportunity for us here. This was done so that we will not crave evil as they had craved evil. It was done so that we would not presume upon our privileged position as God's people as they had presumed upon their privileged position as God's people. And Paul gives us four specific examples of how the Israelites craved evil and how it led to their ruin. And I don't reckon these are at all four random examples. As we read the letter to the Corinthians, we can very quickly realise that the four examples of cravings of evil that Paul is bringing up, we can very quickly realise that these are being played out in that very church in Corinth. People who carried the name Christian were craving and expressing evil in exactly the same way as the people of Israel had. But we can only really grasp the true extent of this when we actually go back into the Old Testament and read the stories of what was considered evil cravings in God's people. So the first example of evil is idolatry. No, no, no surprises there. That's always right there on the list. Uh, but this example of idolatry, it's not just an outright choice of, hmm, will I worship God or will I worship this block of wood? It, it, it's not just that. It's actually a mixing of the worship of God up with other gods. Now, some of you will be familiar with the story. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and a heap of other instructions from God. And he's been up there for quite a while, 40 days and 40 nights. And so the Israelites are starting to wonder, oh, what's happened to him? I mean, here's this mountain. It's sort of basically like a volcano happening. There's cloud and, uh, sorry, thick black smoke and, and fire and happening and, and rumblings happening. And Moses is up there and they go, hmm, 40 days and 40 nights. He's not coming back, folks. What are we going to do? We need a God. We need a God who can guide us. And so they go to Aaron. Now, Aaron, he is the one who had been designated by God to be his priest. And so they go to him and they say, well, listen, we need some gods. What can you do for us? And he said, oh, I've got a good idea. Give me your earrings. And they gather together the gold from the earrings and they melt them down and they form a golden calf. And he says, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Wow. Imagine that. God had been revealing himself and God had brought him out of Egypt. Now, he makes this golden calf. These are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. But they then declared a feast for Yahweh. Now, I've, already, I've said this a number of times before, but I'll say it again. Yahweh is God's personal name, okay? So when the Bible's being really specific that this is the Lord our God, God the Father, that it uses his personal name, Yahweh. But you might read your Bible and go, but it says the Lord in my Bible. Well, here's a little lesson. When you're reading your Old Testament, whenever you see the words, the Lord, written in all capitals, the actual Hebrew word is Yahweh, right? The convention that is across most Bible translations is they actually don't write the word Yahweh because um, it offends Jewish folk, all right? So 
they used to actually have the convention in the in the Jewish scrolls when they actually wrote the word Yahweh they would then put in Hebrew you have the consonants and then you have the vowel points so the vowels are little squiggles and dots and stuff up above the word and they would actually put the vowel points of Adonai which is the Lord above the Hebrew word so that knew people knew when they were reading it oh I can't say Yahweh because I might take God's name in vain and then I'll get stoned and that'd be really bad so safer just not to say it all so I say the Lord when it says Yahweh now if you don't believe me just have a look in the front of your Bibles in the translation notes and it will explain to you there that when it's written the Lord in all capitals that's Yahweh okay so they declared a feast for Yahweh, who is our real God. But they mixed it up with worshipping this golden calf. And it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, does that mean everybody got up to play drop the hanky or something like that? No, it's, it's a euphemism for playing up, right? Now, it might have been a drunken revel. It might have been a drunken orgy. Now... A modern form of this craving for evil might be what's called universalism. Universalism is where you have a belief that all gods are one and the same and they all, doesn't matter which one you worship. Now, in our modern society, uh, it seems that the most important of virtues and, and in, seems to be sometimes the only virtue is tolerance. And so a tolerant society comes to the conclusion well, it doesn't matter what God you worship, all gods lead to the one God. And so people mix the Christian God up with Allah and Buddha and Hinduism and Shintoism and you name it, it gets mixed up. And they think this is, this is all good and nice. Um, and idolatry was a very real issue for the Corinthian church. It might not be such a big issue for us here, but in our tolerant society, we are going to see more and more promotion of multi-faith worship um, and this is I think a very real warning for us to have nothing to do with it the second example of craving for evil was sexual immorality in numbers chapter 25 the Israelite men were shacking up with the Moabite women and the Moabite women turned the hearts of the men to the Moab Moabite god Baal now, if you read much of your Old Testament, you'll very quickly realise that the worship of Baal was endemic and it was always a thorn in the side for the people of Israel. It keeps coming up over and over again. They would turn from God to worshipping Baal. And this is where it all began. And God was angry with them and he sent a plague on Israel. And Paul quotes that 23,000 people died. Uh, in the book of Numbers, it actually quotes 24,000, but you get the picture, hey, it's whichever number you go for, 23,000 or 24,000, that's a big number. Craving for sexual immorality is a craving for evil, and we need to learn from their example. God wasn't going to let immorality go unchecked amongst his people. Th that might be the way of the world, but it is not the way of the Spirit. In Corinth, Paul's pretty clear that sexual immorality destroys our relationship with God. 
And he's also pretty clear that a, a Christian really shouldn't marry a, anybody other than another Christian. Why? Because although they might feel that they're strong in their faith, to be joined to an unbeliever or to be joined to somebody who worships a different God, it makes it really, really hard to remain faithful to God and to grow in God. And that's really what we learn by going back into that passage there um, with the Moabites. The third craving for evil is to put Christ to the test. Now, what does that mean? In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites started getting a little bit impatient about everything. Uh, from Mount Hor, reading from verse 4, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. I know when we were kids we used to get a bit impatient when we travelled. We'd travel from Gundawindi to Ambi and in a car without air conditioning in the middle of summer because we're going to, there for Christmas and we'd get impatient. How do we kids get impatient? How much further is it? Do kids still ask that question? No? Oh, we used to ask it all the time. And that's what they're doing here. How much further is it? So they got impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. They put God to the test. They spoke against God and they spoke against the leader that God had given them as if it was Moses' fault. Why was it Moses' fault? And they complained. You know, God, God was giving them food, but they complained. Well, it's not good enough. And so the warning is, don't put Christ to the test. How do we put Christ to the test? By being impatient, by not trusting in him and by wanting more than what we need. You know, I think sometimes we start praying and we want an answer to that prayer in an hour or a day or a week or a month, and we start getting impatient with God, don't we? And then something happens, we might get impatient with God about that, we might get impatient with our leaders. I've heard Christians say many times, it's okay to get angry with God. He can take it. He's big, he can take it. It's not okay to get angry with God. Who are we to get angry with God? That's putting Christ to the test. And the people of Israel dying in the desert by snake bite is a warning to you and I, don't get impatient with God. God isn't working to our time frame. God has a plan and his plan is good and perfect. And so for us, faith is our trusting in God even when it's taking longer than what we'd hoped. The fourth craving for evil that we need to recognise and guard against is grumbling. They grumbled and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, what sort of grumbling? Well, the Greek word here, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, means murmuring, grumbling, griping, groaning, whining, whispering, 
complaining, especially behind one's hand. All right? It's a picture of seething discontent bubbling away, mostly under the surface, but occasionally making a very ugly appearance. But let's go to Numbers chapter 16 to see what they were grumbling about. And there's actually two instances in this one story. A small contingent led by four men, but backed by 250 well-known community leaders, all right? So these weren't nobodies. Often we, we hear of people rising up against the leaders and, and they call them worthless fellows, right? Those are the scum of the earth and they're just doing everything to... They're just... Everybody knows that they're no good. This is not the case here. These guys are not nobodies. These are the upstanding citizens of Israel, the ones that society looks up to. I'm reading from verse 3. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? All right, what's happening here? God had chosen Moses and Aaron and appointed them as leaders. And in particular, God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. Now, what was the discontent about? Why are you so special? We're just as holy as what you are. We don't need you. Why do you get the position of priest? Now, here's a lesson for us. Leadership isn't contingent upon the leader being the most naturally holy person in the community. Um, if it were, I could certainly never ever be a pastor or a leader of any kind in the church. Moses was a murderer. Aaron was an idolater. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. David was an adulterer. Peter was a coward. Paul was zealously against God. When God chooses a leader, he doesn't base his choice on who we might see as being the most qualified or on the innate goodness or the innate holiness of that person. Leadership in a church is actually an appointment of grace. It is God who makes people holy. It is God who chooses people who don't deserve to be chosen. And when we get into this letter some more to, the, to Corinth, we're going to very soon discover that God gives spiritual gifts and we don't get to decide which spiritual gifts we get. The church is a body. We each have different gifts and we each have different callings to different ministries. It is God who gives the gifts. It is God who assigns the ministries. And in Corinth, we've already seen how there were a few there in that church who were attacking Paul and they were denying his worthiness of even being an apostle. Uh, there were some in that church who were elevating themselves and tearing Paul down. And this becomes highly relevant in Corinth where complaining was being fueled by covert exchanges in small groups, often against the leadership. But let's go back to the story. Moses is just absolutely distraught. Moses never wanted to be a leader. 
In fact, when God had first called Moses, he says, not me, I don't want to do it, find somebody else. Um, a few weeks ago, I shared how I never wanted to be a pastor of a church. Uh, never wanted to be. And I saw the shocked look on some of your faces, or well, why are you doing it? Well, because it's calling of God. Same as with Moses, he never wanted to do it. Verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Right? We don't get to choose ourselves. It is God who makes us holy. It is God who chooses his leaders. And so he says, front up in the morning with all your senses. Right now, a sensor is a bowl that you would put fire in or, or, or hot coals from the, from the altar, and then you would burn incense in it. Right? So a bowl, metal bowl for burning incense in. So something they would use in their religious duties. So he says, turn up in the morning with that, and we'll see who God decides. But before Moses lets them go home for the night, he gives them a bit of a dressing down because many of these people are of the tribe of Levi. Now, the tribe of Levi are the ones who had already been called to serve in the temple. They'd already been set apart from the people of Israel to an extent, and it was a position of privilege and honour for them to serve as, as the Levites in the temple. But they weren't content with that. Verse 8. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small of a thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of Yahweh and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against Yahweh that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you would grumble against him? But the next day, some of them wouldn't front up. And a long story short, um, the ground opened up and swallowed those who had been grumbling, the leaders of it, and then it closed up again and they were gone. Verse 33. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, oh, the earth might swallow us up too. And fire came down from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Wow, uh, this, what an amazing thing. Like Moses said, yeah, well, if you guys are actually good with God, then let you just go on and die as a normal person does. But if something extraordinary happens here, we're going to know that you're not actually doing God's work here. And the ground opens up and swallows them up and closes up again. Now, you'd reckon... 
after they'd seen this and had all this evidence of, okay, this is God's stamp of approval on Moses and Aaron. Uh, We've been doing the wrong thing here. We need to repent. You'd think that's what they'd do, wouldn't you? And the grumbling had just stopped. The grumbling didn't stop. Verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. Can you see what's happening here? It started out with a small group and their grumbling then spread to the entire people. And what did they grumble about? You've killed the people of Yahweh. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of the meeting. And you can see what they're angry about. These guys were strong, upstanding citizens. And Moses, you've killed them. Was it Moses who killed them? It wasn't Moses who killed them. It was God. But Moses gets the blame. When the congregation had assembled against Moses, against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it. So remember, that's the glory of God. And the glory of Yahweh appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it. You see what's happening here? God's saying to Moses, get away, I'm about to nuke them. But Moses is still fighting for these people. He calls out, Aaron, quick, take your censer and put fire on it off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from Yahweh, the plague has begun. So there's a plague here and people are just dropping with the plague. And Aaron runs with his censer, which is the symbol of God's atonement, to make atonement for the people. And he gets between those who have already fallen dead and those who are still alive. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. 14,700 people died in the plague. Grumbling. What sort of grumbling does God hate so much? In both cases, it was grumbling and behind-the-hand comments about their leaders. And even when there was clear evidence of the work of God, because it wasn't what they wanted to see, Aaron and Moses got the blame. And this is so relevant to the church in Corinth who were attacking Paul. And we're told that these four examples were written down in what we now have as our Old Testament for our instruction. We live in a different age to what they lived in in the Old Testament. They were living under the Old Covenant. We're living under the New Covenant. But as God's people, sometimes we're not so different, are we? What a terrible, terrible trap it is to be filled with a sense of self-confidence in our own standing. Verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
And it's in this context that we get verse 13, which we talked about with the kids. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you know what that means? It means I can never say I had no choice. When we are tempted, we always have a choice. We have a choice to either embrace the craving that we have for evil, right? This is the temptations that we get are common to man, right? We get the same temptations that people of the world get. But as we live by the Spirit, we should be rising above this because this is not how the people of God live. We should live by the Spirit and not live by the flesh. And so whether the temptation be a temptation to idolatry or whether it be a temptation to sexual immorality or whether it be a temptation to putting Christ to the test um, by becoming impatient or by wanting more than what we have or whether the temptation is to grumble and to spawn discontent against others and particularly against the leaders that God has chosen or whether it be some other temptation any temptation we always have a choice to escape that sin to run away from that sin and it's a choice that's given to us by the grace of God I don't know about you but I'm greatly encouraged by this I have failed God many times and I'm sure you have too. But we're all faced with a choice where we either become a victim of sin or we rise above it. I don't need to become a victim of sin and neither do you because God has conquered it and God provides a way out always. And God's way out is this thing called repentance and living by the Spirit. The big difference for the people of Israel and us is we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The people of Israel didn't all have that privilege. Back in the, under the old covenant days, the Holy Spirit would come upon particular people for a particular purpose. Whereas for us, as we live in Christ, as we follow Christ, as we give our hearts and our lives totally to Christ, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do you think we live by the Spirit? Not under our own steam. It's by the Holy Spirit. We can live a Spirit-filled life that helps us to endure. But there remains for us a very solemn warning it was a warning for the Corinthian church. And I think it's a warning for us too and for every church in every location and in every time. And it's a warning that we ignore at our peril. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no excuse for any behaviour of mine that displeases God. The Israelites who fell in the wilderness are a warning to us that we cannot presume upon our privileged position. 
only those who live according to the Spirit are truly saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a, a tough passage it's been this morning. We want to thank you, Lord, for the experiences of the people of Israel and how they were written down for our instruction. You don't leave us to, to blindly fuddle our way through life. You've given us example for our instruction. Lord, help us to recognise cravings for evil in ourselves. Yeah, Lord, sometimes we, we, we only ever pray sometimes for those things that we already recognise as evil. Lord, help us not to do those things. But Lord, I ask that, we ask that you would help us to recognise what you see as evil, that you would help us to recognise the things that displease you in ourselves. Sometimes we convince ourselves that, hey, I'm in the right here and, and I stand on my digs and in my pride and, and I might feel that I'm standing but you said, Lord, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Sometimes we don't recognise the displeasure that we are bringing to you. Our oh Lord, we yield to you. Please re reveal whenever we are acting against you. There is no excuse. I cannot say I had no option because we're not alone in our temptations and you are faithful and you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. You give us a way to live by the Spirit. You give us a way to put aside things of the flesh. You always provide a way to escape temptation, no matter what that temptation is, to run away from it and to stand against it and to endure. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.